and that would begin a, a riot in Jerusalem. And it was the Roman soldiers that came and took him into protective custody. But also it would begin a series of trials that Paul is going through that eventually would take him to Rome. And you recall that as Paul was in Jerusalem, the Lord came to him, stood by him, and said that, Paul, you've testified of me in Jerusalem. Now you must testify of me in Rome. And so Paul is going to make his way to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. You recall uh, that we discussed that in our study in the book of Acts. He's going to get there, perhaps not in the way that he thought he would, but he's going to go there as a prisoner, and it's interesting when you read the epistles, particularly the prison epistles, you see that he would refer to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He never referred to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He referred to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He has me here, and he would write those prison epistles, of course, as he was waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero. So come join us, 8.30 and 10.30, as we continue in the book of Acts. Again, we'll be finishing chapter 24 uh, on Sunday morning. And then uh, also, uh, Larry wanted me to make a couple quick announcements about the singles group. Uh, Bible study, Saturday, November 2nd, 5 o'clock. I imagine that's here right and then a group event bowling at highland park sunday november 3rd 5 30 p.m sign up sheet will be in a coffee shop so we will have that in this week's bulletin but he wanted me to make sure to announce it tonight also young adults tomorrow night and going to meet here at seven o'clock and uh and then they're going to go to the corn maze right okay Everybody got it? Other things in your bulletin, take a look at it. But we want to get into God's word tonight. As Father, we come and we desire to just, um, Lord, sell our hearts on what you have for us. We desire to not only read this historical account uh, of what took place long before um, Jesus came on the scene, uh, 2,500 years ago. Um, We see these events taking place 2,600 years ago. But, Lord, we know that as we look at the implication, that we want to make application for our own lives. And, Lord, that we desire to hear from you as we open our ears spiritually, as we soften our hearts to receive your word, that your word may be planted there and it may take root there and produce fruit in our lives. So I thank you that we are here. May we be attentive because I know Wednesday nights, a lot of us have been working and going to school and uh, perhaps some haven't even had a chance to have a dinner or anything because uh, of the busy day. So Lord, I just pray that you would help us to um, just to hear from you tonight and to receive from you uh, as we go through your word, knowing that you honor your word, as David would write, above your name. So, Lord, I know that you're going to honor everyone who has come here desiring to hear and read your word and also to understand. So give us clarity and understanding. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so as we left off last time, we saw the end of the reign of Jehoshaphat. Of course, First and Second Chronicles it gives us an account of the kings of Judah. does not give an account of the kings of Israel like First and Second Kings did. There is some mention of some of the kings of Israel, and we see that in our text here tonight, that they are going to be mentioned, and, and we'll make a little bit of a review uh, as we talk about those things. But here we see in this text here that it is Second Chronicles that is telling us about the kings that would take place in a divided nation. The house of Israel, the ten northern tribes up north, but then the focus is on Judah down south. And there were some good kings and there's some evil kings that reigned in Judah. And Asa was a good king. We saw that he reigned for uh, over 35 years. His first 35 years there was rest. He was loyal to the Lord, but then we saw that he would not seek the Lord, and he was rebuked by the prophet as uh, he would make these plans apart from the Lord. And, And we looked at that very carefully. And the prophet came to Asa and said, that Asa, don't you know that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And then Asa, he would die in a way that he he was uh, not seeking God. He had a disease in his feet. And one of the things, as I mentioned to you, that 
you and I, how we can get defeated in our spiritual life is we're not seeking the Lord and our hearts aren't loyal towards the Lord. Well, his son, Jehoshaphat, would come on the scene and Jehoshaphat was a good king. And, and the reason that he was is because he had a loyal heart towards the Lord and he delighted in the ways of the Lord. And so he was established. He was one that prospered. And the way for you and I to be established and really truly prosper in the best sense of, of the word in, in being prosperous in the ways of the Lord is that you delight in his ways. And we should be ones as Christians that as we read the commandments and see the principles and the truth of what God has given to us in this word, we should, del- should delight in our hearts to do those things. And, and that's what Jehoshaphat did. He was a good king that sent the Levites and the priests throughout the cities of uh, Judah to establish them in the word of God. He set up judges that would judge fairly and, and according to the word of God. So he did a lot of good things. But also we saw that Jehoshaphat, he would link himself, ally himself with the evil king of Israel, Ahab. And you recall that Jehoshaphat, he had his son that we're going to read about here in chapter 21, uh, that he would marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So as we open up chapter 21, we do read that Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. One of the things that we learned about Jehoshaphat is that there was compromise in that aligning himself with Ahab and Jezebel. And the reason that I think that uh, he did was, again, the the suggestion is made that he wanted the nations to unite, the the ten northern tribes with the two southern tribes. And one way to do that is as we'll align ourselves with marriage. My son will marry your daughter Ahab and Jezebel. And, of course, we know that Ahab and Jezebel, as I mentioned to you, uh, they were very violent. They were ones that killed the uh, sons of the prophets. It was Jezebel that wanted to kill Elijah. Uh, It was Jezebel and Ahab that had Naboth put to death as they came up with this this plot um, to take his vineyard. And so we discussed about that quite extensively. And here is Jehoshaphat. As he does that, we see the consequences of what happened because of that. We know that Jehoshaphat, even though he had good intentions, he compromised the word of God. He would violate the word of God. And I just want to remind you and me again at this point in our study that any time that we violate the word of God, there's going to be negative consequences and repercussions because of it. You see, sometimes we can think, oh, if I just come up with my own plan, if I come up with my own schemes, if, if I do this, if I do it according to what everybody else is saying, and then I'll be better, I'll, I'll be stronger, um, things will, will turn out really good, because it's got to work, it, it's a good plan. But here's the thing, if it violates God's commands and his ways, then you're not going to be better, but you're going to end up being bitter. You're not going to be stronger. You're going to find yourself being weaker. You're not going to find yourself in a better position and, and, and being free from uh, the difficulties and the troubles that you're trying to avoid. You're going to find yourself in bondage is what you're going to do. The difficulty. You will find yourself in despair and in defeat. And one of the things that we're going to see here is the consequences of Jehoshaphat's sin, of violating God's word not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. We know that those warnings are given in the Old Testament to the kings not to do that, not to be aligned with that which is evil and false. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. Even though he had good intentions, we're going to see that it's going to bring negative and terrible consequences to Judah. So here he is, Jehoshaphat, he rests with his father, Jehoram, his son reigned in this place, and he had brothers, the son of Jehoshaphat, and they're listed there in verse 2, and, and all these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. And now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. And Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. 
Verse 6 we read, And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab as wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So even though Jehoshaphat scattered his sons, and that was a common practice back this time, if you were the king, man, there, you were a target for those who would come and, and try to, to uh, take the throne away from you. And, um, and usually how that was done is not only would they target you, but all of your family. So Jehoshaphat, what he did is he spread his sons across uh, Judah to different cities, which was uh, a wise thing to do. But here is his son here that ends up finding his brothers and ends up putting them to death. A real nice brother, isn't he? Real nice guy here. But you see, he's walking in the ways of Ahab and Jezebel. They were very violent. They would do things like that. And here he's doing the same thing. They were very much Baal worshipers. We know that um, they had plunged the house of Israel at this time deep in the Baal worship. And we see this is what is going to take place in Judah. And so he would be ones that, that uh, would follow after um, the influence of his wife and of his in-laws that were up in Israel, uh, the, the king and queen of Israel. In verse 7, Yet the Lord did not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. We see here that the mercy of God is extended because of the covenant of David the covenant that he made with David. You recall in chapter 17 that David wanted to build a temple to God and God said, David, you're not going to build that temple because you're a man of war. There's going to be a man of peace, your son Solomon, who's going to build a temple. But I, I do give you this promise, and he made a, that covenant with David, that your line, your uh, throne is going to be established forever and the Messiah is going to be the one that's going to sit on your throne. And that's why it's going to be established forever. And David was overwhelmed. So that promise that the line of David would continue and also that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that's why when you go to the gospel narratives, that the people were crying out, Son of David, Son of David. It was a messianic term. They knew that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. So because of this covenant, God's going to be faithful in keeping his word. It reminds me so much of what Paul would write to Timothy. He would say that when we are faithless, he is still faithful. And God will be faithful to bring his word to pass. Now, even though he shows mercy and grace here, and he's going to continue the line of David, it's almost going to be destroyed as we're going to continue to read. But there is still consequences for sin. There's still repercussions for compromise against God's word. And that's what these chapters that we're going to cover tonight are really going to show us. So here he is. He, he is putting to death his brothers. Um, and yet the Lord uh, did not destroy the house of David. In verse 8, in his days, Edom revolt, revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. And so Jehoram went out with his officers and all his chariots with him. And he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And thus Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And at that time Lydna revolted against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. And moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray. So rebellion is breaking out all over Judah in their spiritual and moral decay because he made the high places in the mountain of Judah. And again, we discussed this, that those high places were not only places of false worship, but they were places where great immorality was practiced as well. And so all of this has taken place, and when we read this, we see that uh, the writer, inspired by the Spirit of God, the writer of Second Chronicles, he uses that term that we haven't really seen before, but we see it from this point out throughout the Old Testament that he says that you've committed harlotry, spiritual adultery. And whenever we read that word or hear that word harlotry or adultery, it's a very strong word, isn't it? I mean, it's a very serious thing, uh, adultery is, because God had, had likened himself to a husband to Israel, to his people. And they were going after other gods. They had committed spiritual adultery, given their attention, their devotion to those false gods. And that's what he likened it to. 
And so it would be the prophets, as you read through the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other minor prophets, particularly Hosea gives that picture as you read the minor book of of Hosea in the minor prophets. We see that that term is used a lot. Uh, Why did you go after another? Like you're going after another lover and and committing uh, adultery, spiritual adultery, and that's the way that the Lord saw it. So here was compromise, and again, this compromise, uh, there was sin, and they are going to really begin to experience defeat and despair and, and bondage, and certainly Jehoram is going to experience that as well. All because Jehoshaphat, through his ungodly alliance, instead of making the kingdom stronger, the results are is going to make it weaker. And moral decay has come and spiritual decay. Moms and dads, the decisions that we make for our families and for our children are very, very important. And what my hope and prayer is, is that we would be ones that we would desire to please God in the decisions that we make according to the Word of God. And as I mentioned to you last week, and I think it's worth reiterating, that I think that there's a real lack of discernment among Christians today because there's a lack of the knowledge of the Word of God. And the only way to have real wisdom and discernment in our lives and the decisions that we make in our lives is we need to know the Word of God and what God's Word has to say. And I commend you for coming out on a Wednesday night going through the Old Testament because there's not a whole lot of people that want to do that today. And a lot of Christianity today is not so much teaching of the Word of God but a presentation of the Word of God. One of the things that that I was... um, experienced this weekend. I was in Kansas, um, and uh, I was at a non-denominational church. I was excited to, to, to go to the church because I had a relative that was a pastor there, and, um, but it was really discouraging in a way, and I don't mean to sound critical or, or judgmental at all, but it was a presentation is what it was rather than a teaching from the Word of God, and I know that for me and for this ministry, that I am committed to giving you the Word of God chapter by chapter and verse by verse, giving you the, the simplicity of the Word, giving you understanding as best that I can as God allows me, and uh, application for your life. So all of us, that we will be wise for salvation. Paul would write to Timothy, Timothy, Timothy. You can hear Paul pleading with him. Timothy, you must continue in the Scriptures that you have learned from childhood to make you wise for salvation. And not just being wise for salvation in that you're going to go to heaven, but being able to experience the full blessings of God in your life as you have wisdom, being able to be discerning, being able to be strong, being able to grow in faith, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that comes by us being students of the Word of God and then applying it in our lives, having it in our hearts. And what my hope and prayer is as we do that, that we will be able to, and I know that we will, as we seek God and as we seek his word, to be able to make wise decisions for our families, wise decisions in any area of our lives, and how we need that because there's a thousand voices that are out there that will pull you away from what God's word has to say, that will pull you away from truth, that will get you into that which is compromise and sin. And the results are going to be, again, despair and defeat. It's going to be messy and it's going to be confusing. And you see, God wants us to have that not only, as Jesus said, I've come to give you life, but I've come to give you life abundantly. What does that mean? It means that we are living in a way that we're experiencing God's blessing. We're experiencing his wisdom and that peace that passes understanding, to be courageous, to be able to be strong, to be able to be established. Jehoshaphat was established because he delighted in the ways of the Lord. And he had a heart that was loyal to the Lord. And the only true way to be established In this day and age, in the best sense of the word, established in the Lord, established in in truth, established in wisdom, is to know the word of God. So here is the nation that's uh, plunging after years of of going through a time of godly kings. uh, All of a sudden, Jehoram 
brings this evil and compromise and sin into the kingdom. In verse 12, we see, And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa king of Judah. So Asa and Jehoshaphat, again, good kings. For many years, Judah has experienced the blessing of God, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Judah to play the harlot like the harlot tree of the house of Ahab. And also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, were better than yourself. Verse 14, Behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. How would you like to get a letter from, like that from Elijah? <laughs> Not a very encouraging letter, is it? Joram? You're going to be hit with the disease until your intestines come out. Again, pain, sickness, and hurt. You see, that's why it's a loving father that says, walk in my ways. That's why it's a loving father that says that I want you to follow after me because he wants us to experience that abundant life that he has for you and for me. So John in his epistle would write that his commandments are not burdensome. You see, never look at the light of God's word, his commandments, his truths, to where when he tells us to do something, that, oh, Lord, you're just trying to make my life harder. You're trying to make my life, you know, miserable. You're, you're you know, trying to be a killjoy where I can't enjoy life. Um, never see it in that way. This is the love of God, the apostle would write towards the end of his life, that you keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So every commandment of God given to you, listen. Every principle, every truth that you gain from the word of God, do you realize an expression of his love to you? Don't picture God up in heaven with, you know, thunderous, this is my commandments, you know, and if you get out of line, he's there leaning over the banister of heaven, you know, with the lightning bolts on his side, ready to strike you if you get out of line. And unfortunately, there are Christians that have that picture of God. And God is a loving Father that says, here's my love for you. My love for you that I want you to keep, you to keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And I think that when Jesus said that, It was such a voice of compassion as he would look out at the hillsides in Galilee and he would see the multitude there. The multitude, it was like sheep without a shepherd scattered. And he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you. Learn of me and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. You take on the yoke of the world, you take on the yoke of, of sin or, or compromise, it's going to be a heavy burden. But you come and surrender your life completely to Jesus in every area of your life, you're going to see that his burden is light. And you're going to see that every commandment that he gives to you is because he loves you. He wants you to be free. He wants you <clears throat> to experience blessing. He wants you to be strong. He wants you to be wise. He wants you to, to have real fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And so he says, follow after me so you can have that good life. By the way, (coughs) as we read this letter here, it's interesting that this letter comes from Elijah the prophet. Remember Elijah, the fiery prophet there in 1 Kings? Well, it's interesting that in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is raptured into heaven. Do a little digging, you go to 2 Kings chapter 8, that's where Joram becomes the king. This letter comes to him after Elijah was raptured into heaven in a fiery chariot. So how did this letter get to him? Did he write it in heaven, Elijah, and beam it down to Joram? Did he do that? I don't think so. Some scholars have suggested that it wasn't Elijah, that it was Elisha. 
Remember that Elisha replaced Elijah in the prophetic ministry and received a double anointing, a double portion of Elijah's ministry, the prophetic ministry. I don't think it was Elijah. I think this was Elijah. And just remember this, he was a prophet. So probably, improbable, I think what happened was is that Elijah, that he wrote this letter prophetically and then it would end up being delivered at the right time. So it's interesting to look at this, and it wasn't a good letter. It was a word of judgment coming to Joram. And verse 16, moreover, the Lord stirred up against Joram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. The Philistines, we haven't read about them for a while, have we? The Philistines, of course, that they were on the west coast of, of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. They had five major cities. They were the ones that became strong during the reign of Saul. And the reason that they became strong was because Saul was so busy uh, pursuing David and wanting to kill David that he neglected the nation spiritually and he neglected the nation militarily. So the Philistines got to be very, very strong during that time so that when David became the king, his main enemy that he was fighting against was the Philistines. And then, of course, he would also subdue the other enemies around him, the Syrians and the Ammonites and some of the others. But here the Philistines rise up again. After a couple hundred years of, of really uh, not being a problem to Israel, uh, to Judah. So they're becoming a problem. Arabia, which would be in that area east of, of Judah, and then Ethiopia, which was, was to the south. So these guys are being raised up to bring judgment against Judah. Uh, remember that the covenant that God made with Moses there at Mount Sinai. That lays kind of a foundation for the rest of what we're reading here in the Old Testament. That if you follow after me, he told the children of Israel, I will bless you. If you forsake me and go after other gods, false gods, then what's going to happen is that you're going to find yourself being defeated by your enemies and going off into captivity. And, of course, Second Chronicles is going to end with uh, the house of Judah going off into captivity by the Babylonians. Uh, they will go off for 70 years um, into captivity. But uh, we see that here these guys are rising up at this time in verse 17, and they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wife, so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. Jehoahaz, or Azariah, he's also called in Scripture. Uh, they, you know, here is Joram that kills his brothers. And all of a sudden we see that here is Ethiopia, the Arabians, the Philistines that come and, and take, you know, Joram, uh, his sons and, and, uh, and his um, wives. And we know in chapter 22, when we get there in just a few minutes, verse 1, that they ended up killing them. Jesus would say, with what measure you judge with, you will be judged. And this is an illustration of that, certainly, as we read this chapter. But you see, I want to bring it home a little bit closer to you and to me. And if you're one that's condemning and judging all the time, and I'm not saying that as Christians we don't bring correction and rebuke, but there is an attitude of love. There is to be a desire for there to be repentance or there to be restoration on the part of the person that you bring correction to that you care enough about them that you are going to bring correction to them by the word of God, all right? But here's the thing. If you're one that's always pointing the finger at somebody, that you're coming down on people or gossiping about them, guess what? By what measure that you judge, you are going to be judged with. In other words, you're going to have a finger pointed back at you. Usually it's two or three. And you're going to have people coming down on you and being harsh on you if you're harsh to others. And if you're gossiping about others, then you're going to have others that are going to gossip about you. And my hope and prayer for us here at Calvary Chapel is that we would treat people the way that God would want us to, with love and sensitivity, that we would desire for them to grow and be encouraged in the things of God, to be edified and exhorted. And so we need to be careful about how our attitudes are towards others. We need to be very careful about what we say about others. And we need to be ones that we want to build others up. Remember, I think we talked about this not long ago, but Paul writing to the Philippians, he said, approve the things that are excellent. 
We live in a society where we like to tear down and criticize and find fault with anything. That's the first thing that we like to do. But don't forget to approve the things that are excellent, whether it comes to your kids, mom and dad, to your employee's employer, whether it comes to those that you minister to. That yes, we want to, to build them up. We want to be honest with them. There are times where we got to bring correction to them, to our children, of course. But don't forget to approve the things that are excellent. You're doing good in this area. I'm proud of you. Keep going and exhort them in that way because we all need that, don't we? And I pray that Calvary Chapel, that we would never be a church that we just nitpick each other to death because there are churches out there that do that. That people like to walk around and, and sin sniffers is what they are. You know, trying to sniff out sin or what's wrong with your life and all of this. But we would be ones to approve the things that are excellent. Paul went on and he would, with love and sensitivity, inspired by the Spirit of God, bring correction to the church of Philippi that he loved very much and had a special relationship with. But he would plead with them to do better. And knowing that, that God was going to honor that as they would take heed to what the apostle was writing to them with apostolic authority. So here is this taking place, and, and um, we see that the judgment would continue. Verse 9, 18, after all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines and with an incurable disease. And then it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness, and he died in severe pain. And his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. <clears throat> he was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, not in the tombs of the kings. So for two years there was great pain. There was death. You think that perhaps that he would have, you know, turned to the Lord during that time, but he, there was no indication that he did. Pain and sorrow came to his life because of sin. I know that all of us that we know people that have gone through years of pain and sorrow because of sin. And maybe you're here tonight and you're experiencing still the consequences or the sorrow and pain because of sin in your life. Oh, you've turned to the Lord. There's forgiveness. And I want you to keep trusting in the Lord that He sees you and He loves you. And a word to you is given is that he restores the years that the locusts have eaten. And I don't want you to forget about that. The mercy and the goodness of God. And I think all of us, that we've experienced consequences and sorrow and pain because of sin in our life. But I also want to say this, that if you're here tonight and you're involved with sin or in compromise, please, please, Stop and repent because it will lead to sorrow and sickness and pain in your life. That's what the Bible declares very clearly. It was Paul writing to the Corinthian church that said these things in the Old Testament are written for our examples. And again, as we read this chapter, it's a hard chapter to read, but God is... is from the pages of this Bible and your Bible, is saying, please don't get involved in sin because the results of sin and the consequences brings pain and sickness and sorrow. And he doesn't want that for your life. So if you are involved in sin or you're thinking about it, stop and turn to the Lord. He loves you and he wants the very best for you. So Jehoram dies in great pain because of sin. And so chapter 22, the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, his son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. 
And Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. We read in verse 3, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother's advised him to do wickedly. And therefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. So Ahaziah has a short reign and rule. Um, you would think that after he saw all the turmoil with his father that he would turn away from the influence of uh, his mother, uh, but he doesn't do that. Athaliah was really the power behind the throne at this point. Omri, she was the uh, daughter of, of, or the, um, as we read here, um, the granddaughter uh, of Omri. Remember Omri? He was the father of Ahab. He was the seventh king of Israel. He would reign during the end of the reign of Asa, and he was the one that built Samaria. You say, so what? Samaria became the capital of the ten northern tribes of Israel. So he built the city, and then his son Ahab, when he came on the scene, again, Ahab and Jezebel were huge Baal worshipers. They built this big temple there in Samaria dedicated to Baal, and they fortified the city, and, and uh, they really made it to, 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 the place to be in the ten northern tribes of Israel. But it was a place of false worship, just like Dan was with the golden calf, with uh, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, and then in Bethel as well. So here was Samaria that was built by Omri, and they continued in the sins, or that is in the false worship of Baal. In verse 5, he also followed their advice, uh, Ahaziah did, and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Jehoram. And then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So the scene is this. Ahaziah keeps this alliance with the wicked house of Ahab. The king of Israel, Jehoram, Ahab's son, talks Ahaziah here into joining him with war. Sounds familiar. Isn't that what Ahab did with Jehoshaphat? So, hey, our fathers did it. Why don't we do it? So Jehoram of Judah, Ahaziah, and Jehoram of Israel, Jehoram, do you got it straight? We're going to have a quiz afterwards. <laughs> they fight Syria. Again, Ramoth-Gilead, same battle, end up being defeated again. Joram is wounded in that battle. He goes to Jezreel. Jezreel is a beautiful valley right there at the base of Mount Carmel. You, you stand on Mark, Mount Carmel. You look out in this beautiful valley that's very lush, uh, agriculturally rich. Uh, Israel's got a, uh, um, a military air force base there, and you see jets flying all over the place. Very, very, very luscious um, uh, and uh, very green. Um, they got greenhouses. They got wheat fields. They got vineyards. It's a very fascinating place. So here's this valley he goes back to, probably where Naboth's vineyard was, and he's recovering, and all of a sudden his nephew Ahaziah goes up to see him. As you go to Second Kings chapter 9, you know the story how Jehu was used of God to bring judgment on Ahab's family. He ends up killing both of them, the king of Israel and the king of Judah at that time. Verse 7, um, as we see, um, he's going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. For when he arrived, he went out with Joram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, and who was the Lord, had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. So you remember that Ahab, judgment was pronounced upon him by Elijah. So Jehu was used to, to, to uh, bring that judgment. And so the king of Israel uh, is uh, killed at that time. Ahaziah here, he ends up being killed. Verse 8, it happened when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab. He found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah, brothers who served Ahaziah, that he killed them. And so you read about that, 2 Kings chapter 12, or chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. And so Ahaziah's brothers, or that is uh, extended family, 
uh, his kinsmen are put to death as well. So the line of David is starting to dwindle down here, and it will continue to as we read on. Verse 9, then he searched for Ahaziah, and they caught him. He's hiding in Samaria, brought him to Jehu, and then they killed him. They buried him because they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord in all his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom. So just in case you're wondering, we see that as it was Ahaziah that was with his uncle, the king of Israel, and Jehu comes up, he ends up killing the king of Israel, and we know that he ends up, Ahaziah, fleeing to Samaria, which was a short distance. As you stand in the valley of Jezreel, you look right to the hills where Nazareth is, and that's Samaria. And so he hides, they find him, they bring him to Jehu, who, who ended up wounding him, he ends up fleeing to Megiddo, which is on the other side of the valley, kind of a geography lesson. And he ends up dying, according to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 27. He would be buried there in Jerusalem. So what happens after that? Well, verse 10, we read, that now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs to the house of Judah. But Jael Shabbath, um, the daughter of the king took Joas, the son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among the king's son who were being murdered and put him in a nurse in a bedroom. So Jaas Shabbeth, uh, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And then as we finish the chapter, and he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So this is what's going on. Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel and, and, um, and Ahab, uh, the mother of Ahaziah, she sees that her husband's been dead, that is Jehoram. She sees that her son Ahaziah is dead, so she decides to take over the throne. She does for six years. And now she tries to eliminate the house of David. So she's trying to put to death anybody in the line of David, just as Jehu was eliminating the house of Ahab. This is a very terrible time in the history of Judah and also in the history of Israel. So here is this, this rotten fruit that continues to be produced because of this alliance that Jehoshaphat had made with Ahab. All of a sudden, it seems hopeless. It seems so dark, but God has a plan. A couple of things that I quickly want to end with, but don't pack it up quite here. Jael Shabeth, she's also known as uh, Jael Sheba in Second Kings chapter 11. We don't know too much about her. Very little is known except that, that she is married to the high priest. Jehoiada. We know that as she is also um, probably uh, the sister, as is mentioned actually to Ahaziah, um, it is believed by scholars that um, Athaliah wasn't her mother. It was, you know, came about by a, another mom. But here is this, this woman, very little known. She has a son. She's from the line of David. And it's a little Joash, and she hides him in the temple. You know, I want to encourage you who really make it a priority in ministering to your children. You see, the world may look at it and say, big deal. You might think, well, I'm not very well known. It doesn't seem very significant to others. But in God's eyes, is very significant. And know that God has a wonderful plan, not only for you, but has a wonderful plan for your children. You never know what God wants to do with your children. And here is this one who's desiring to honor God, to restore the line of David, and she puts them in the temple. It reminds me like the boy Samuel who grew up in the tabernacle. And as you moms and dads make it that decision that we are going to make it a priority to minister to our children and raising them up in the ways 
of the Lord and the admonition of the Lord. That a great place for them to be is in the temple. In other words, a place where God is honored and God is spoken of. And that is your home. Your home needs to be a sanctuary for your family. And hopefully in this place where we can come along and we can encourage you in that. Where we can help you in any way. But parents... Know this, that what a delight it is to the Lord when you make that decision and don't ever think that what you're doing is insignificant. What you're doing is very courageous. And what you're doing is very wise. And what you're doing pleases the Lord. And here is going to be a boy that's going to be brought out and he's going to be the king at six years old. The Lord wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can hope or think. So mom and dads and grandparents, uncles and aunts, the young ones that you have been given to minister to and minister with, that is your priority, that you pray for your children. You pray for them, you pray for them. And you pray that, Lord, that you would get a hold of their hearts because it's always a heart issue. And Lord, protect them. And Lord, give me wisdom. And you talk to them about what the Lord means to you. May they see that in your life, that the Lord is real. And yes, that the Lord is blessing because you are walking in the ways of the Lord. And there is delight in your heart because of your devotion to the Lord. And you're going to see that it's going to impact your children for the kingdom in a powerful, powerful way. And you protect them. And you make sure that you filter what is going on in your home. You protect them from any of the evils or influences that come in. And you make sure that you talk to them and you pray with them and you share with them God's word. You get them grounded in the Word of God. Make that a priority. And here is Jael Sheba that is honoring the Lord and has this child that's going to be raised in the temple of the Lord. And you continue to say, Lord, I want to do this because it is important not only to my children, but Lord, it delights you and you see it. One other point I want to make. It's a dark time here. It seems like it can't get any worse, can it? And God steps in, and he has a plan. He's going to be light. He's going to bring light. And he's going to restore the line of David, as we'll get into it next time. Maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you're at a point in your life where you're thinking, can it get any worse? The pain, the the loss, the difficulties that I am experiencing or going through, I want you to know this, that God is in control. He's still on the throne. And you keep looking to him, trusting in him. And he's going to bring light into the darkness. And he's going to stand by you. And he promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. And he promises to work all things out for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. And know this, that he desires to do an incredible work in your life. He sees you, he hears you, he knows you, and he loves you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words of just encouragement and lessons that we can go through even though it's a difficult chapters to read and we learn the pain and sorrow and what can happen when we get away from you from truth from your ways father i pray that we would always remember that jesus on that night before he went to the cross would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And what my prayer is, is that if there's anybody here out in a coffee shop, in this sanctuary, if you've never turned to Jesus Christ, I want to give you good news, that he loves you and he died for you. You see, the Bible says that we've all sinned, every single one of us, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And there's a problem, because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, because of his love for you, went to a cross. The Son of God, who lived a perfect life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the Bible says, turn. The Bible says, repent. That, that is a liberating, freeing word, repent. It means you quit going the direction that you're going that's going to lead to hopelessness. The world is not your hope. Jesus is your hope. He gives us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross because of his love for you and bore all of your sins upon him. And then he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've paid the price. I've done the work. And now as we come in faith and as the scripture says, whosoever believes in him, that if we call upon him, shall be saved. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he was put into a tomb and he rose again after three days and he's alive. And perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart tonight. Will you let him in? Today is the day of salvation. This is the most important decision you will ever make. It's a decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to ask him to be your personal Lord and Savior, to ask for forgiveness of sin. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Just as he declared and he proved it by rising from the grave. And he loves you. So, if you've never done that, again, this is an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus tonight. If you don't know what would happen to you if you were to die, you can have that assurance tonight by surrendering your life to him and asking him into your heart. You pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. I confess that I am a sinner. I now surrender my life to you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins and you were put into a grave and you rose again and you're knocking on the door of my heart and I now let you in. Oh, help me to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for loving me so much that you died for me.